AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for August 11th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by Matt Kaiser here. Matt, welcome. How's it going, Brian? Once again. Always. Hopefully not just once again, but many times again. Stan Nurlov, thanks for joining Stan. And we have Jim Clausing online. Welcome, Jim. Thanks, good to be here again. I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, I guess first, Jim, we're gonna go to you. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, you know, I, my impression has been that the Android patching has been a little bit ad hoc, and it sounds like they're trying to get a little bit of structure around it. Yeah, this uh, I, I just happened across this article in uh, the com on the Computer World blog uh, earlier this week. Google, Samsung, and LG, who are the obviously the makers of the three biggest lines of Android devices, uh, have stated that they are going to start issuing monthly security patches for Android devices. Mm -hmm. Microsoft started doing this for Windows back in about 2003 or something. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, and, and you're right, it's been something that has been pretty ad hoc in the, in the Android world up till now. You know, Google writes the OS and they've been sending monthly updates to you know, to the other, uh, to the device manufacturers um, for the last two years, telling them what patches were available. Mm -hmm. But, you know, those patches weren't necessarily making it to the users in their, you know, in their phones and in their tablets. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll see how this, how this is going to actually work out. But Google, Samsung, and LG have both pledged that they're going to start monthly security updates for Android. So I, I take that as a good sign. Yeah. I, I, I think, it, you know, it, you'd mentioned Windows and, you know, if I remember correctly, I think Oracle still works on quarterly patches. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of wonder if they're really the trend should be more toward like daily patches or something, you know, I, that might be a little bit on the extreme. Perhaps monthly is the right cycle for uh, where we are in the industry today. But um, I think, as you're pointing out, you know that if uh, the, the real question is when it actually gets to the end user, and you know I've seen a lot of cases where end users they don't they don't do the patches. They you know they'll hold off on it. They get a notification of it. It's like oh no, I've got to reboot my device and go through a bunch of gyrations. So hopefully, uh, you know that next threshold will get uh, will get addressed relatively well as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the hope. Um... Uh, and it's, I guess it's appropriate that we're covering this on Microsoft's Patch Tuesday. <laughs> but, the, you know, even I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Microsoft is actually changing that a little bit with Windows 10 um, and Server 2016. And there are some folks who are going to get it, get the patches even more frequently in the Windows world going forward. But, yeah, it's, it's a question of how quick are they going to, are the patches going to make it to the handsets and the tablets mm -hmm. and are they going to be automatically applied? Is the user going to have to be involved in the process? Mm -hmm. That's something we'll have to see how that shakes out over the, you know, the weeks and months to come. 
All right, very good. Looking forward to it. I, I was just thinking that the automatic updates, you know, sometimes you have something where they strongly recommend you reboot your machine mm -hmm. uh, for, you know, the patch to take a, you know, effect. And with a handset, I think it's a little bit different. I think people might be a little more reluctant to reboot their phone if they're using it for, you know, for example, business critical applications or they're doing something very specific on it. I feel like it's a little bit more of a personal device than a laptop or a desktop, and they may feel differently. So, I don't know. Are they going to... You think people would change the um, the model on which they patched you know, the automatic pushes or the automatic restarts or anything like that? Well, you know, <laughs> completely orthogonal view here. Okay. Um, I just happen to know some people that if they have a 64 gig device, they'll fill it with 64 gig of video and pictures. Okay. And so when you go to do the update, there's no storage available to actually download the update. I, I, I might have run across that myself once or twice. Yeah. yeah so that's really, I think, it's the inconvenience. It's not the inconvenience of actually doing the the update. It's the inconvenience that oh, I was really trying to call my friend or send a text, and it's annoying me with this this you know update thing, oh, and okay. then having to actually go in and release the memory so that you can do it. It's, it's that level of convenience. That's so, funny. you know, the, on one hand, you might, you know, you might want to even just partition a piece of memory that's, that's reserved for OS updates. For scratch so that, base, yeah. yeah. For... And then to have it actually downloaded in the background or something, you know, that, and there, that's another aspect is that if you're, if you're, uh, if you're on a rate plan, you don't want to necessarily download you know, gigabytes of stuff. Especially if you're not on Wi-Fi. Yeah. Right. So to get it into have it control that, and there are, there are provisions for that in the devices, I think, usually. So mm -hmm. uh, to be able to control when it downloads, but that might not be a convenient time. So it's it's those types of things, the usability aspect, of it, that hopefully, mm -hmm. you know, in time will improve. That actually gives me a slightly orthogonal tangent of my own, where if I have my set-top box at home and I haven't keep it, I don't keep it turned on. Uh, if I go and I want to watch something, it's like the one time I want to watch something that's live on television, I go and turn it on, and what does it want to do? Fill my screen with a message saying, we're updating for the next five minutes, and I miss five <laughs> minutes of my show. So I, I think a, I feel the same kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, so you need, to, yeah. you need to sit down five minutes before your show and turn the <laughs> Oh, that's, that's, I should do that. Yeah. Jim, you're talking to the person that started recording the program a half hour late. <laughs> 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 okay, so perhaps we can move on here. Now, Stan, we're going to go in deep here. I think you told so. me we were doing, going deep. So uh, tell us about this, uh, this new firmware rootkit. Well, it's a bug that was disclosed uh, during Black Hat. Um, there's a mode in processors called the SMM mode. Mm -hmm. um, and apparently, and I didn't know this, uh, so when I went through my uh, education about uh, the different rings inside of a processor, I knew about ring 0 through ring 3. And those are the different privileges. Mm -hmm. So what kind of memory you can access, what kind of instructions you can run. Mm -hmm. Zero being your kernel uh, mode type of privileges. So that's where your operating system runs and sometimes some device drivers. And ring three uh, being uh, user land space. So that's what people know as user land. That's where your processes run. Mm -hmm. um, so that has fewer privileges. It can't access certain types of memory. Well, apparently over time, uh, they've built in negative rings <laughs> to be even more privileged. So there's a ring negative one and ring negative two, which is this SMM mode. And so the the thing about the SMM mode, uh, I guess it allows you know certain other types of instructions to be run and just has more uh, protections. It can bypass certain uh, TPM type uh, protections. Uh, it's a trusted platform module. So how does it work? 
the way it works is uh, it has basically the special memory region that it can map called uh, SM RAM, so system basically system memory RAM. And so in that memory, there's just a special, I guess, instructions or special code and things like that. So when the device is running in this SMM region, it can have access to all of these special instructions. It can overcome certain types of items. And mm -hmm. usually that's in the firmware of the chip. Uh, so you during boot up is when you're in that mode and then it goes into kernel uh, uh, in mode zero and that's where your operating system runs. Mm -hmm. So the problem with taking something like that over is basically you have even control of the operating system. Even the operating system is not going to know what's going on. Uh, okay, so I, the reason I love this bug actually is because it shows how when you're designing a complicated system, you can really make a lot of decisions at certain points in time and forget that how certain things kind of get you back and impact security. Details matter, don't they? Yeah, details <laughs> matter, but with the architecture of like x86, it's been in the design forever, right? And there's certain features always coming out. You kind of sometimes tend to forget what else is there out there. And by the way, before I go on further, I definitely recommend everybody read the, the paper on this. Uh, we have, we're gonna have the link. Just because of the abstract, like if you read it, I thought it was funny. I was laughing for like 10 minutes. Just the language the guy used to describe <laughs> this whole thing and set up the, the talk. So now let me go back in deep. <laughs> and I'm only going to paraphrase what's going on. So apparently, uh, there is a, a, a feature that was added like 20 years ago uh, for the, the APIC, it's called. So it's a, a part of the processor that handles interrupt controllers. Mm -hmm. And that's not so important. What's important is that where it used to be mapped in memory, at a certain memory location. And mm -hmm. then they added another feature that allows it to be remapped using special registers. And this functionality of remapping things, that's accessible from ring zero. Mm. And apparently, you can remap it right into this SMM region. So what happens is uh, you can basically, oh, and this APIC thing is before the, basically the access control for the memory region that only SMM can modify. The problem with this one is that this APIC region, it's mostly zeros hard-coded in there. So when you read that memory, it's just returning zeros to you all the time, mm -hmm. maybe with a few exceptions. So you're thinking, okay, so there's this memory region that I can override the SMM with, but it's mostly zeros. How am I going to take advantage of that to create my crazy firmware rootkit thing? Well, apparently you can, and that's another reason that I love this story, is that sometimes it seems impossible, but in practice, or like in theory, you're thinking and you're like, Nobody would do this. Nobody would try this. This is not possible. It's mm -hmm. all zeros, this memory. Or apparently, uh, these researchers, what they did is they studied uh, some firmware that runs in SMM mode, and they discovered a segment of, of the instructions, a sequence of instructions, that when you read the zero memory, it can actually allow you to jump far out into another part of the code that might be something you would control. Hmm. So just even with all those zeros that you kind of like sinkhole there, you're still able to execute code. So the key here is you're running in ring zero, so you're already at the operating system level. So you've got your driver kind of malware or something like that, this kind of rootkit. And what you're doing now is you're mapping uh, into memory region zero your special uh, advanced rootkit code or second stage payload and then you override these APIC registers to sinkhole basically the memory in this SMRAM. And then you trigger some sort of a, uh, something that would cause you to go to SM, uh, the, the special uh, SMM mode. And once you do, 
basically the SMM mode is running your instructions. Uh -huh. So that's your uh, firmware bootcamp. And you can, the possibilities are endless. So when you read this paper, uh, there's going to be some proof of concept code there. They tried it on a specific processor. They give you some instructions. What I love about it is the abstract. When you read it, it's just the way it's written. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's a really good explanation. Mm -hmm. And another reason I love the story, like I said, it just shows you, like, as over time you build this complex system, there's all these different things you, you do, you build, and, you know, they probably spent a lot of time to make sure this SMM uh, memory is, uh, is secure, you know, the, but they forgot about this one region that you can map in with the mm -hmm. APIC, or maybe they didn't consider it. Uh, so it's, it's very interesting. I, I love these bugs because... <laughs> I love looking into them. So is there a fix coming? Is there uh, so it's a firmware fix that they would have to issue, mm -hmm. uh, basically to get rid of some kind of a, fir you know, this set of instructions that would allow you to do something like this. I think they've been working with Intel to try to get some firmware type of fix released, uh, but it's not going to be for every architecture, probably some of the older kind of motherboard devices and stuff like that. That's probably is something that won't be fixed. Right. Uh, but there is a possibility uh, to fix the firmware and patch it. But in general, this whole thing is like an architecture thing yeah. because of where the components lay out. So perhaps it's something they can fix in another uh, component or, you know, but in yeah. general, it's this code that allows you to do this. So this was a research project. That is, it's not really in the wild, is it correct? Yeah, I think it's just proof of concept code. It's not uh, something that's in the wild. But he describes mm -hmm. it very well. And actually, while I was researching around this paper, I found some great resources online about SMM and getting mm -hmm. into the UFI and then other firmware type uh, rootkits. There's some great resources out there. And if mm -hmm. anybody who's interested, I think we'll be able to easily find them just using Google. Right. Um, some very detailed, very, very low level type of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but something to be aware of if you're into that kind of thing. I always enjoy reading the, the proof of concept code for these sorts of things because you, 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 you read it and you realize how much research must have gone into this. And you look at the proof of concept code and it's like 15 lines. Yeah. But the amount of time that they took to craft those 15 lines has got to be incredible. Yeah. But it, it looks so simple <laughs> and it's so brilliant. And then you're like, yeah. oh, that's 50, I can write 15 lines yeah. of code. You can't write those 15 lines. Does anybody know who had the quote, I wrote you a 10-page letter because I didn't have time to write you a three-page letter? <laughs> yeah, <that's about laughs> that, yeah. I, I've never, I'm not exactly sure who made that quote, but the, uh, it, it's right along those, those lines, and especially when you're doing something in Assembler, it's getting into the little subtleties and all the... Yeah, there's lots of subtleties on this one. And, <laughs> yeah. and to think that everybody had to do it that way at one time, oh, but yeah. I date myself. So I guess, what are the implications? Stretch this out, and, and you're just talking about a complex system that's this big, yeah, right? on a chip. And so we're, when you expand that out to a this size system and then to a network of systems and the applications that are running on it, what, what, are, what are the implications here, Stan? Well, for this thing in particular, uh, just taking this bug, it basically allows people to write this kind of firmware rootkits that are going to yeah. bypass anything at the operating system. So there's actually nothing you can do to get into this SMM memory. It's very hard and to get mm -hmm. into SMRAM, but these guys found a you've, way. You've got to exploit the machine to get there first. Yeah, but and we know that that's you'd not be able to, Then you'd be able to entrench once you get to that Yeah, point. exactly. So basically you're able to entrench on these x86 mm -hmm. architectures. And one of the other things is this firmware code is basically the reason it's so prevalent on x86 devices is because basically Intel releases some kind, you know, here's how you could develop some firmware code that's mm -hmm. like this. So it's a reference implementation they call. So right. in this, a lot of people are like, 
why wouldn't I use this reference implementation? It's really nice. And it probably is very nice. And when I read it, I was like, you know, looks good to me. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's just that the, the, the way it was structured is it allowed you to be able to jump to certain memory segments. So I, probably the fix is also easy in the sense mm -hmm. of you just fix the reference implementation. So things going forward would be fixed. And with the proof of concept code they had, they actually observed that, hey, on the different architectures that they investigated on the different types of devices, they did see that over time, you know, as things progressed, this reference implementation had actually already been changing over time. Mm -hmm. So they probably have been finding other issues and things like that. So I guess this is just one more that they'll add to that. Right. Uh, but the implication always with stuff like this is you can have a really deep rootkit, something that can make itself come back and really will require you to patch firmware uh, with some special equipment at to, remediate, yeah, right. to remediate the device. Otherwise, right. you just burn it and send it back to the hackers is what I say. Yeah, well, and if you look at some of the things that were described in the equation group where they were actually embedding it into the firmware of the disk drives and things like that, I mean, if, if a sophisticated actor, if you suspect that a sophisticated actor has gotten into the system, you really have to just toss, toss it out and start over because yeah. that, that you, you know, if you really want to make sure that they're out of there, that's the only way to me. Give it to somebody that uh, doesn't care. <laughs> Give it to somebody who wants to use it as a research project. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, because it's uh, the the fact of the matter is once you've gotten into the it's one of those uh, what is fundamental premises. Once they own once they own the system, it's not yours anymore. Yep. <laughs> and this is uh, really proof and evidence of that uh, of that capability. All right. Well, that's uh, that's an interesting one. So, uh, Jim, I'd like to ask you, what's in your toolbox? <laughs> Well, thanks, Brian. Um, yeah, this is a, a new segment we're trying on the show. Uh, we'll do this from time to time called What's in Your Toolbox. And the one that I wanted to start with this time is TCP dump. We talk on the show all the time about, you know, what packets we're seeing out there. And so uh, those of us who do this all the time, you know, it's we know the tools real well, but maybe not all of our viewers uh, really know the tools. So I wanted to take a little bit of time and talk about an oldie but goodie, one that I, I think is really crucial, and that's TCP dump. TCP dump is, is based on libpcap, and they were both developed by uh, Van Jacobson at Lawrence Berkeley Labs um, back in the late 80s. And one of the things that also that they also developed at the same time is the Berkeley packet filter syntax, which I'll show a little bit of here. TCP dump is is the is the basic tool that we use for doing packet analysis. There are newer tools. There are nice GUI tools. You know, sometimes their decoders don't always work. So going back to the original, going back to TCP dump is is I think useful. Mm -hmm. So you know, Jim. Sorry for the interruption, but just a little comment on this. I think I, I just wanted to sort of emphasize or reinforce your point. You know, some of the best tools are actually the simplest tools. It's really nice if you have a real, if if you know, to have a sort of a graphic user interface for something that you need to do very routinely, and it's all really kind of laid out for you. But when you're, you know, having to twiddle with things that you're not sure what you're getting, where you have to to go next, having the simplest tools and be able to put the pieces together is, you know, like, why are Legos such an attraction? 
you know? It's because you got really simple little pieces and you can turn it into something big and complex without having uh, to, have to go through a lot of gyrations. So anyway, I forgive the, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, no, there, it, exactly. That that's, that's, that's why I think understanding TCP dump for those of us who have to deal with, you know, network traffic and network attacks is, is really important. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wireshark is nice, and in fact, one of us will probably do a, mm -hmm. a what's in your toolbox segment on Wireshark at some point in the future. It's really nice, but the decoders don't always work. You know, the packets can be corrupted. It's nice to be able to go back and be able to pull all the pieces out yourself and figure out what's really going on in the packets. So the, what I've got up on the on the screen at the moment is an example of a packet dump. I'll show a few of the a few of the switches and explain what's going on here a little bit better. I did mention previously the Berkeley packet filter syntax is a way of filtering what's in the capture down to just the specific things you want. Like mm -hmm. for example, the the capture that I've got up on the screen here now, I'm just capturing the packets that are either coming from or going to the host with the IP address 192.168.10.101. You know, you've got all kinds of machines chattering back and forth over the wire. Well, this zeroes in on some of the specific traffic you're interested in. In this case, traffic either coming from or going to a particular IP address. Mm -hmm. Or similarly, you can do it to a specific port. In this case, I said port 53. This would get me UDP traffic on port 53, TCP traffic on port 53. If you wanted to be more specific, you could actually say UDP port 53, and that would only give you the UDP. The Berkeley packet filter syntax is, is very rich, allows you to you know, pull out specifics of different parts of the packet. You, know, you can look at specific fields in the IP header, in the, you know, in the TCP or UDP header, and so forth. When I am using it looking for details, I like to use the dash capital X switch. What the capital X switch does is it will show you the entire content of the packet in both hex and ASCII where you know, where it's where there is an ASCII. Where the character is ASCII printable. So for example, what I've got highlighted in red here is the hex representation on the left and the ASCII representation on the right. You know, there are times when the contents of the of the packet are not something that's ASCII printable. Well then you need to look at the hex side, but I can find things a lot more quickly on the ASCII side if there's some readable ASCII there. So, you know, the dash X switch is, is nice. One of the other things I wanted to, to highlight here is this shows the entire packet from the IP header through the contents of the packet. And so what I've highlighted in red here is, is the start of the IP header. And then here in the green, is the actual source IP address mm -hmm. of the packet in question here. When I'm digging into weird packet captures, you know, sometimes I'll, I will go into the hex 
if I don't necessarily trust how it's been decoded by whatever program I'm dealing with. So this, this I just wanted to show this. The SANS Institute has put together two really nice PDF flyers. If you're interested in, in analyzing packets in detail, it shows the layout of the IP header, the, you know, the ICMP, TCP, UDP, whatever, both IPv4 and IPv6. So I've got links for those later on. The, the next two switches here are the NN. The first N tells TCP dump not to do a reverse DNS lookup and just give me the IP address. The second N says not to do the lookup in the Etsy services file for the ports mm -hmm. and just leave the raw port number in there. By default, I always use NN. I'd rather see the raw numbers rather than generating a DNS lookup that may time out, you know, if my lab doesn't have internet connectivity, or if it does, may give the bad guys a hint that I'm looking at their traffic. So mm -hmm. the R switch here tells TCP dump to read from a PCAP file, one that's already been captured someplace else. The alternative is you can use the dash I switch and tell it to listen on an interface on, you know, whatever machine you're doing the trying to do the packet capture from. Mm -hmm. You can actually also use the dash W switch to write to a PCAP file, which is useful if you want to read from a bigger PCAP file, use a Berkeley packet filter syntax to narrow it down and write the results out into another PCAP file. You can use the dash R and the dash W switch together. And then finally, the dash C switch here says, just look at five packets and then quit. Uh, that's also a, a useful switch sometimes. Since TCP dump came along, though, there are a lot of tools that are built on libpcap that can read pcap files, write pcap files. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to deviate a little bit and go a little bit beyond just TCP dump. You know, one of the things that I showed in, in the previous slide, you'll see it shows a timestamp, IP, and then an IP address, dot, a port, greater than sign IP address dot port. And TCP dump will do a little bit of decoding of the packet. So we know that's a UDP packet. And in fact, because it's on port 138, it knows that it's NetBIOS. One of the things that I kind of like, if I don't want to do the decoding of the IP header and the UDP header or the TCP header myself, we know Snort as an IDS. But I kind of like to use it as a packet analyzer sometimes, too, because it will do the decoding and break all the fields of the IP header and the UDP header out for me. I decided to throw that on, on this slide. It's circled down here in red. You see the timestamp, just like we saw before, mm -hmm. the IP address, colon, source port, IP address, colon, destination port, the fact that it's UDP, then we'll see stuff from the IP header here. The, the time to live field is decoded for us. The TOS field is decoded for us. The IP ID field is decoded. And it also gives you both the hex and the ASCII representations of the, the contents of the packet. I, I used snort this way a lot before the dash capital X switch came into being on TCP dump. I actually don't use it that much anymore, um, but I thought it was 
useful to show that there are a lot of other tools out there that use libpcap mm -hmm. and can be used you know, in conjunction with TCP dump. In fact, one of them, I wrote myself a Perl script. There, there's an existing tool called ngrep that is like grep on a, on a Linux system, lets you look for packets that contain a certain string. The problem is the version of ngrep that is, that is out there on the internet doesn't do IPv6. So I created my own Perl script there's a link here. You can see where to go get it. But mm -hmm. uh, here's an example where looking at that same PCAP file, I wanted all packets that contained the string mail slot in it. And that first packet that we had been looking at before was the one, the only packet in the capture that contained that string. So this is just another example of additional tools that also use libpcap. You can find TCP dump and lots of documentation about TCP dump at tcpdump.org. It's available in most Linux distributions. You can install it from the maintainer. There's a Windows version available called WinDump that has a few limitations but works pretty much like the Linux version. So that's just a, a quick intro to one of the, the tools that, that I find really handy when dealing with network stuff. I know you guys have all used TCP dump. I didn't... Absolutely. Are there any features there that I should have mentioned that I didn't in the in the quick intro? Nothing that's screaming at me, Jim. But I think uh, you know I think you really got the message across here. Good job on that. And the um, you know I think it's uh, it's it's good to get some of this uh, some information about what the basic tools are out for folks that perhaps haven't had the opportunity to go in and do uh, guru level packet analysis like uh, some of us have, have had the experience of doing. You know it, this is. Um, this is like, I mean, I guess the old adage of blocking and tackling the basic, uh, getting the basic tools available to be able to uh, do a variety of things. And I think the, the sort of the part that you incorporated there with uh, how you can use it in conjunction with Snort is a, uh, a good example of how these things can tie together. So uh, to, I guess to sort of lighten things up a little bit here, Matt, what is the craziest thing that you can think of that you might want to connect to a network? This will take me a while. I got a crazy imagination, but I think the answer you're looking for is a skateboard. A skateboard. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, tell me. okay. so this was interesting. A um, little bit of research that came out on a particular set of motorized skateboards that yeah. people were apparently using. Two researchers. One of them realized that he was using his own skateboard mm -hmm. in an area that I guess was very well known for having all sorts of EM interference, mm -hmm. and he would lose control of his skateboard, which was controlled by a small Bluetooth, you know controller, mm -hmm. which would allow them to, you know, apply the brakes, speed up or reverse, and it just would stop responding. And it turns out that the electromagnetic interference was actually jamming the communications. So his commands weren't going through. But then, mm -hmm. you know, with a little more thought, he said, well, what else can I do with this if I know that I can cut off the communications between my controller and my board? And so they're calling this the faceplant bug in a long <laughs> tradition of you know, mildly amusing names for, for bugs. But apparently one of the brands of skateboards that they tested, they were able to actually stop and quickly reverse the motor on the on this, this skateboard so that the, the user would continue moving forwards while the skateboard would go backwards. That would be pretty surprising. Uh, apparently there's a little bit of a lag time if you're looking for it. If you realize your motor is spinning down, you might pick up on it and step off. Mm -hmm. But for most new users, they said this, nope, you're, you're going to end up um, 
in the dirt uh, <laughs> or on the pavement. Apparently, they can do other things like if you're standing at the top of a tall hill and you're relying on your brakes to keep you from moving, same attack can be used to make you go forwards mm -hmm. without you being prepared for that. So it's, I think it's it's a little bit silly that these things are using Bluetooth for, I mean, I, I guess you want to have some sort of wireless control of your motorized skateboard. Mm -hmm. I wasn't really familiar with motorized skateboards until I heard about this story. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems like one of the more ridiculous things that I've ever heard of someone attacking, and I, I would call this, it's verging on an Internet of Things device because it is using Bluetooth. Yeah. Oh, it's only one step away from it. I mean, if, if they decided yeah. to hook this up to Wi-Fi, um, I don't know why the heck you'd want to do that. But still, it seems so a little bit bizarre. I mean, a little bit. This yeah. this has been making some some real news, and I maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Would you go out and buy yourself a, a Bluetooth controllable skateboard knowing this? You know, I don't think that would have been a, a part of the thought process, and I think that's the significance here: is that uh, as we start talking about, or as we've been talking about, Internet of Things and all of the devices that could potentially. It, this, the sky's the limit here. I mean, it, 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 we really need to broaden our imagination. I would not have thought of skateboard until uh, in this story until this story came out. So mm -hmm. it's uh, as we progress forward, as the technology evolves, and as even the technology that we have available today becomes smaller and cheaper, we're going to expect to see this kind of thing in many, many more kinds of devices. That and the, and the implications are unimaginable as well at this point. So keep your eye out for it <laughs> from a security standpoint. Okay, so let's take a look at the internet weather from the uh, last week or so here. First item I wanted to share with you is uh, scan probes on port 53413 UDP. Now, this port isn't officially registered to something, but it had been discovered some time ago, we reported on it before, that it's uh, associated with a backdoor on Netus routers. Netus is a, uh, I think it's a Chinese-made uh, product. I think there may be, in fact, more than one manufacturing name associated with this. Uh, it is possible to buy these, but they are generally more popular in Asia uh, region in India and China than they are in the United States, but they are available in the United States. Anyway, we're looking at, I think, 30 days worth of data here. As you can see, there's sort of a larger density of scanning activity that's been taking place over the last couple of weeks here. I'm not sure what the motivation is. This is not the most dense. We've seen other sort of uh, surges of uh, scanning activity, but it showed up on the radar. thought I'd share that with you. The next item here is scan probes on port 111 TCP. This is uh, associated with Sun RPC, that is traditionally what was Sun, now is Oracle. The Sun operating system, or Solaris operating system, and it's a remote procedure call. We're looking at 30 days worth of data here. Now, this is not a port that gets probed all that often, but it is a, um, it is a potential uh, access point for uh, remote attackers. And I think the uh, Solaris operating system is kind of, you know, tapering down. I think a lot of folks are moving to Linux or uh, other operating systems. But nevertheless, most of these probes are from a single U.S.-based hosting provider. Uh, the number of sources, most of them are actually from a France-based cloud service provider. So uh, you can see there's clearly a correlation in terms of time associated with the activity here. I'm not sure if those, uh, you know, that U.S.-based source and the France-based sources are, uh, are related directly. There may be something that came out. Now, I dig a did a little bit of digging. I didn't see any uh, obvious new vulnerabilities that had been posted associated with uh, Sun RPC. That doesn't rule out the possibility that there's something that, uh, that folks are in specifically looking for here.
Uh, next item here is scan probes on port 143 TCP, that's IMAP. Uh, this is sort of an alternative to POP for retrieving email. It provides a little more in-depth view of things. We're looking at 30 days of data here, and you can see that there's, you know, there's some bands or groups of uh, probing activity that have taken place. This happens to be coming from a US-based university. I think it's research activity as opposed to uh, malicious intent, but there's a good possibility that when this type of activity takes place, that if there's an exposure that exists, it might end up getting posted someplace. So keep in mind that, uh, first of all, if you have an email account somewhere, IMAP may be one of the access points, and that's a potential access point for folks to be uh, you know, attacker to try to do password guessing or something along those lines. They may have gotten a password from another account of yours and may, might try those and see if they can get access to your account. So it's sort of something to keep in mind. If you're, if, even if you're not hosting IMAP or not familiar with it, if you have email accounts, this would be something that you probably want to be paying attention to a little bit. Make sure those accounts are protected properly. Uh, looking at the top 10 most probed ports, uh, top of the list here is actually port 1900 UDP, and uh, that I, uh, I tend to triple up with, uh, port 53 UDP and port 123 UDP. All of those ports tend to get used in addition to their legitimate application. They get used in reflective denial of service attacks. And so uh, we're going to take a little bit of a closer look at that in a moment here. But uh, following the uh, port 1900 UDP is port 22 TCP, port 23 TCP, both of those uh, associated with basically password guessing attacks, followed by port 80 TCP and uh, 443 TCP, of course, looking for perhaps dark web sites, that sort of thing. Or would this be great? <laughs> this, this would be deep web and not dark deep web, web by my dark. definition. Okay. <laughs> Okay, we, we had a discussion about that. I need to use the terms consistently. So this will be not ones that are indexed, but aren't protected by a Tor network or something along Correct. those lines, right? And then the uh, port 445 TCP, of course, that's always on there. And then uh, port 21320 TCP. We'll take a little bit of a closer look at that in just a moment here. But first, port 53, port 123, port 1900 UDP. These are getting used in reflective denial of service attacks. Now we're looking at the probing end of this, that is a number of requests coming from a common source. Now there are two aspects of this that could exist. One, they could actually be probing around looking for active servers so they can use them reflective attacks. The other possibility is that, that it is actually a spoof source sending out a bunch of requests to a lot of destinations and then uh, hopefully inspiring responses back toward that particular target. Uh, in any case, uh, we can see that there was certainly a big surge in activity on port 53 over the last week or so here. I've seen what appears to be a little bit of a climb in the level of activity, particularly on port 53 recently. You can see there's a little bit of surging activity on port 1900 as well. The significance here is I think uh, as blocking measures are being put into place or protection measures put into place, I think the uh, the folks that are using this type of attack behavior are doing more probing to try to find servers that they can use uh, as a part of this attack activity. So on one hand, it's probably a positive thing that they're doing more reconnaissance and uh, hopefully in desperation of trying to find those servers to be able to use uh, in their attack activities. Next item here is the scan probes on port 21320. 
And uh, this is not actually registered to uh, or well known to be associated with particular applications, but the uh, Norris Corporation actually had put together a report some time ago, actually in September of 2014, that basically identified this port as being used for a proxy. They had discussed some uh, activity associated with scanning on this or for this port. And um, there was another port that they had, uh, there was scanning associated with, if I remember correctly, it was uh, 9104. In any case, um, uh, this is associated with a use for a proxy application. As you can see that there's been some uh, ramping up in terms of activity on and off probing for this port. So uh, it would be of interest. So if you see this probing activity or if you're hosting proxies, uh, you want to make sure that uh, this one's under control. In terms of the most sources doing the probing, looking at the top 10 here, you know, actually, I don't usually talk about ICMP, but this one is just littered with ICMP activities. Uh, in particular, ICMP3 is one, uh, in type 3, code 3. That's a uh, code for destination unreachable. We're going to take a little bit of a closer look at that, but uh, I suspect that there's, um, you know, it really just has to do with a lot of probing activity or denial of service attack activity and uh, basically basically responding and say, you know, you can't get there from here. Uh, then followed by port 23, there has been some, uh, I think most notably actually, some spikes in terms of the amount of probing on port 23. Not so much in terms of the uh, number of sources, there's a little bit of an increase of activity. Uh, I didn't make a graph for that today, but in any case, that's been the case. Uh, looking at the ICMP 3.3, uh, again, destination unreachable, that's a, basically, if you try to send a packet to somebody and they don't want to answer on that port, they might send back an ICMP 3.3 message that basically indicates, you know what, I don't want to talk to you on this port, so uh, please go away. And, well, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, machines are a little persistent, they're not paying attention to what the ICMP message is saying, they'll keep on trying, and so you can see some of that evidence here. This has been going on for a couple weeks, and you can see that this is, probably associated with a particular actor or group, you know, or a small number of them because of these gaps that occur and the activity. So I suspect it's actually uh, basically response messages from denial of service attack activity of some sort. You know, the systems are basically persistently saying, you know, stop talking to me and they're still getting those packets nevertheless. Which incidentally, if you happen to be under a denial of service attack, there's not really much purpose in, you know, going through the effort to provide response messages and running your system into the ground attempting to do that. It might be something you want to just sort of turn off <laughs> for the period of the time of the attack and, um, you know, just save some, some processing resources. Yeah, it might be a default configuration on some Oh, it's a good, yeah, it's most likely a default configuration. That. But, um, and maybe a deployment of a lot of these systems with the default configuration mm -hmm. that are being sent. Or maybe somebody turned a firewall on or something like that. Yeah, that's a good possibility. You know, yeah. I keep thinking, we've, we've heard of, you know, Internet of Things devices on consumer IP space where, you know, if they're using something like a uh, DHCP IP address, maybe someone scanned yesterday, was found all their, the vulnerable devices, today they're no longer there. Right. Another possibility. That's a possibility as well. Yeah. This is not subtle activity. Oh, <laughs> Nevertheless, <I know>. <laughs> Okay, so that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, and we'd like you to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find ATT Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's on YouTube as well as on iTunes. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. Lots of ATTs in here. I wonder why that is. Nevertheless, thank you, Jim.
Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Stan. I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, again, thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with a new episode, and until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.